You see, old friend, I brought more soldiers than you did. Welcome back, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's edition of the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com and also the podcast after the show available at iTunes uh, for download, uh, but also up at 21st Century Wire on the show page. And uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, we will also have in the third hour uh, our guest, James Corbett, from the Corbett Report. We're going to break down the Panama Papers story in, in graphic detail. You don't want to miss that. Now, our first guest uh, is from Beirut. And uh, I'm going to pull up his long resume here, but I'm going to do an abbreviated version. But his name is Habib Bata, and he's an investigative journalist, a filmmaker, and he is the editor-in-chief of BeirutReport.com. There's a link to that on the show page. You can go and see Habib's work. But he's also covered Lebanon and the Middle East for over 15 years and has contributed to a lot of good uh, newspapers and broadcast channels, including The Guardian, the BBC, Al Jazeera English, uh, Vice on HBO, CNN, Variety, and many, many others. And there's also a link to a, a TEDx presentation that Habib did, uh, I believe it was uh, last year, was it 2015. Very interesting. It talks, he talks a lot about citizen journalism, but also about the issues that we're going to talk about today uh, on the show. He's also the uh, two-time recipient of the uh, Samir Kassir Press Freedom Award. And he's currently a research fellow at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University in the UK. Habib, thank you and welcome to the show this week. Thanks very much. Good to be here. So glad to, this, this is our little bird, temporary bird's nest uh, downtown, but uh, we're running on a 4G connection. We'll talk about the internet in Lebanon later, but um, you know, I, I'm, when I first met you a couple of years ago and you were talking about this issue and he, this issue of uh, the, not just the archaeological digs or preserving history and how this idea of history clashing with development. And I've noticed over the years now you've kept at this and you've really developed uh, what I think is a very important body of work around a discussion that, quite frankly, a lot of people aren't wanting to go there for, for many reasons. One is very difficult. Uh, it's a very difficult issue, and you, you you've come you've come up against some serious um, uh, adversaries and some blowback uh, for the work that you're doing. And uh, I just want to say that, and so many other issues. I think here in Lebanon, you've touched on some of the most important issues, uh, not not just for Lebanon and Beirut, but really that can be applied to other parts of the Middle East. This issue of history, this. I first got exposed to this with what was happening when the U.S. invaded and occupied Iraq. And the first stories I saw, a lot of this was in The Independent in, in Britain, about the U.S. just basically built a base on top of a Mesopotamian uh, famous temple. or so, I don't know what it was, but it was like a fuel depository or something that they 
built on it and they bulldozed some half of this and and there's so many stories of this stuff being looted out of museums ending up who knows where and then when you come to to beirut and to lebanon you have like iraq you have so many layers of history so many civilizations going back 8000 bc to the present and it's i'm going to just read I'm going to read something that was sent to me last night, and then I want to, we'll start, have a conversation. But this is from Leslie. This is one of our listeners sent me this last night, and she said, uh, thank you for updating us on your experience. And uh, let me say, last week's show was very difficult to listen to, uh, not because of the sound quality of the guests, but because learning about the eradication of cultures and history. And I was deeply moved, but frankly, I was overcome with emotion and compassion. Uh, as difficult as it was for me to listen to, uh, I still felt it had to be shared. And, um, you know, nothing can compare uh, to the pain and suffering of the people, but this is also a very important story to tell. And um, so people in Europe, people in North America, they take a, taking a huge interest in this type of a story. But... Um, but thanks for joining us. And just t- tell us a little bit about this. About first, tell us about your work. How did you get into journalism? Was it was it by accident, or was this something that you've always wanted to do? Um, yeah, I think uh, I think it grew on me. Journalism is not an easy field to be in, especially uh, here in Lebanon um, or anywhere. You know, it's really hard to survive on words. So it, it's been a struggle, definitely. But uh, I think the more that you do it, the more you feel an obligation to document things um and that's what i try to do on my site is just kind of oftentimes i feel like if i don't go somewhere if i don't take pictures if i don't um attend an event there might not be a lot of press coverage there it might not get out uh to the public and that's what happens a lot of time especially with these uh ruins that are being dug up across beirut uh you know phoenician roman ottoman uh islamic period uh really important kind of uh pieces of the puzzle of uh what's happened in the past that are often being destroyed. And we, we care a lot about history when a group like ISIS, for example, uh, you know, saws off a head of, of a statue or something. Um, but, you know, we don't often hear about it when it's capital and real estate and Western-sounding uh, neoliberal things like big shiny glass towers um, and marinas. And those kind of developments are equally a threat, I think, to uh, archaeology and preserving the past. And so uh, in one case, I you know, got physically assaulted uh, in, in Beirut when um, there's about a $300 million project, about 20 uh, you know, multi-million dollar uh, kind of uh, townhouses that were going up um, on a site that was believed to be a Hellenistic site, a Roman site. Um, and there are ruins there. And, you know, when I, and, and that site's being designed by a British architectural uh, firm or consultancy um, that, that's involved in that. And, and I was trying to take pictures and, and document what was there. And I ended up getting locked in the site and surrounded by the workmen, kind of like mafia style. Um, and they just kind of dove at me and twisted my arms behind my back until I raced the pictures of the ruins that I had uh, documented on that site. Uh, fortunately, that's not always the case. I've been able to document a lot of other things <laughs> without getting roughed up. Um, and, you know, we have seen in some cases... Uh, what's coming together here is activism in Lebanon, young activists and even middle-aged activists, doesn't have to be young, um, who, who are able to document some of these ruins and, and create some kind of you know, uh, social media campaigns that have led to stopping some big projects. And one of the most important of those is a $150 million tower designed by Jean Nouvel, who is the famous 
a French architect. He wanted to build this uh, uh, tower and five-star hotel and, and, and luxury mall complex uh, in the heart of downtown Beirut. And um, through kind of contacts with activists, were able to point me in the right direction. I was able to document that site um, and show people images that they've never seen before. And it was one of the most important archaeological digs in the city, archaeologists uh, believe. Um, and they were kind of had their hands tied because this the minister was was willing to go ahead with the development according to uh, news reports. And so I thought the best way to, to shine a light on the story was would be to take pictures of it from a rooftop. Um, the problem with a lot of these uh, projects is that they're surrounded by big construction walls. Yeah. And you're not able to, and the public really doesn't know what's going on. There isn't a kind of a, a public information that says, oh, you know, on this site, you know, we're, we're digging up uh, the, the Roman walls of Beirut or um, whatever. There's, there's nothing. Um, so the public often doesn't really know what's being dug up in their, in their city um, and, and history and the world history, not just Lebanon's history, um, that's being, that's being uh, unveiled and, and, uh, and dug up. Um, for the first time, and so you have to go to building tops, sometimes rooftops, to, to shoot down at these sites. So I, I, you know, I, I was able to shoot a lot of images of this site, which is believed to have the the Roman Gate of Beirut. So Beirut was was a really kind of famous Roman city, actually, and you know we don't know a ton about it because so much has been raised and, and um, uh, in the in, in the name of development, um, but. This discovery was of, of what was believed to be the Roman Gate of Beirut. So that was probably basically the front door of the city, a really important find. Um, also, one of the oldest churches, a fourth or fifth century uh, basilic. So um, this site was really important, and getting those pictures out there created a viral a, a viral effect. And that's what's really important. That's what's happening, I think, with uh, the kind of digital um, uh, the digital kind of uh, you know. Um, let's say intensify intensification of uh, amplification of a story is that it goes viral and then the news media can't ignore it and then once it's all over the place the politicians can't ignore it and in this case the minister two days after the story and the pictures were leaked uh he he actually came out and said that the project is going to be stopped um so you know there are some rays of hope i think in terms of people having an influence over things that they never had an influence over before um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, the entire city of Beirut was basically turned into a private corporation, uh, the old city. Uh, and, and they demolished, you know, just hundreds of buildings. Um, and, and, you know, nobody had a say in that. Um, nowadays in Beirut, there's so much activity uh, and so much concern about this discourse of historic preservation that um, every square meter now is disputed. Uh, whereas in the past, you know, hectares and, and acres were, were kind of just seized overnight. Um, now it's a lot more difficult for politicians to have their way. And um, I, I think, uh, you know, even growing up in the United States and living in Europe, I, I haven't seen many skyscrapers being constructed because in America and in Europe, the business district is normally the business district and it's not a big residential area. So you don't, in, unless you work in the financial district, you may or may not see a skyscraper being built. But if you're in this city or you're in Dubai, literally every 10 feet, there's a skyscraper going up and you don't realize what it, what's involved until you actually take a look. And I saw one down at Mataf, Mataf by the National Museum. Uh, I, the whole, it corresponds the depth of the hole corresponds to the height of the skyscraper and they're putting parking down 10 levels and 60 70 80 100 meters sometimes depth and 
you imagine how many diff- the potential for how much history mm-hmm. you can find at that depth. Um, I saw one Byzantine settlement that they St. Joseph's University, and the archaeological uh, people were down there, and they were taking. This was in 2013. They took photographs. They were meticulously cleaning stuff off. And I went last week, and there's just a skyscraper there. So they, they removed it or they recorded it. We don't know. But um, it's, again, it's just another skyscraper, another glass uh, block of apartments or an, of, an office building that's empty. Yeah. And a lot of the office buildings are empty. Yeah. So I think this is a really important point is that we're often told, oh, well, we can't save everything and the city is not a museum um, and we can't stop progress, etc. I think this is a very problematic uh, reasoning for, for, for a number of reasons, and that's, um, first of all, uh, the city is not a museum. <laughs> very little has been preserved. Uh, very, I mean, there were actually hundreds of digs across the city in the 1990s. It was actually the biggest construction site in the world um, in the 90s because of what I was saying of how this private corporation basically uh, founded by the prime minister. Is that Solidaire? Solidaire um, was, was created by the prime minister to rebuild the city. Obviously, conflicts of interest um, there and, and the kind of laws that were um, manipulated and changed to make that project happen. Um, yeah, so much was so much was discovered, you know, hundreds of sites. And out of those hundreds of sites that were, there were digs, um, almost, you know, maybe three or four remain, a handful really. Um, and so, so that's kind of a silly excuse. Uh, the city is a museum. Um, secondly, when we say development, when we say progress, what do we mean by that? Um, I think we have to take a closer look at who benefits from these type of skyscraper projects. Uh, anything being built in Beirut today, for the most part, is luxury, high luxury. Uh, we're talking about thousands of dollars per square meter. We're talking about millions of dollars per apartment. Um, no one in Lebanon can afford those prices. There's almost no job uh, in Lebanon where the average, the per capita income is something like you know, ten or fifteen thousand dollars a year. Um, who, who can afford, you know, who, who has the millions to put, you know, millions down for an apartment? You have to have, have millions more in the bank probably. So, so what's, being hap- what's happening in Beirut is, is essentially the city is being sold off to foreign investors. Um, and a lot of times these foreign investors who, who participate in these, um, you know, projects by buying an apartment or, or two, uh, you know, it's kind of speculative real estate it's, um, or it's a vacation home that's rarely used, maybe a week a year or a week every two years. Um, so what we're seeing is a lot of these towers are empty. Uh, you see, you, you will drive down the streets at night in Beirut and you'll see maybe one light on in this, you know, glitzy, shiny glass and steel tower. Um, and so you wonder development for who? Um, we're in a city where people are in desperate need of jobs, of, um, of, of, of spaces to work, to innovate, um, of, of, of spaces uh, to relax, to, to, to kind of have public spaces, to live a normal life. Uh, every square meter of the city is being sold. Very few public spaces remain. Uh, the coastline is being sold. People can't even go uh, to the beach anymore. Um, so there's very little public space. There's very little coastal space. The laws are being manipulated by politicians who themselves are real estate investors or, or their cronies are real estate investors. Um, so what, what kind of development do we need? Do we need spaces where people, um, you know, some of these ruins, for example, would be great open green spaces in a city that has almost, you know, it's, it's a concrete city, Beirut. It has one of the lowest uh, green space uh, ratios in the world, according to 
international organizations that that study this stuff um and and so you know you feel kind of trapped in the city like there's nowhere to go uh, it's a concrete city it used to be a lush city uh, surrounded by a pine forest now that pine forest has been largely decimated um so little bits and pockets remain so i think every kind of ruin area is, is great for historical purposes it's great to have people try to imagine to to discover uh, explore appreciate their city but also just to have a place to breathe um, and, and, and you know, so what, what's what's more valuable? Six villas for a luxury uh, investment that no one can afford and no one's going to live in, or you know, a Roman ra- chariot racetrack which has recently been destroyed in Beirut uh, to make way for for six villas that uh, again no one can afford. People don't go down there. You know, I think you have to also factor in these kind of sites tell a story about the city of Beirut, a story that goes back to uh, its prominence during Roman times. Uh, you know King Herod, these 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 great names and what they've built there, uh, like them or hate them. Um, it's, it's very interesting. It could bring tourists. It could also be a space I think for locals. You know, again to imagine. You know, imagine having a you know school bus full of children come on a field trip and 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 you know maybe they would you know fall in love with with history or, or archaeology or anthropology on a trip like that. But instead, we have villas for the rich uh, concrete structures that have you know very little kind of character it's the same neoliberal model all over the world luxury 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 um you know the same star architects uh you know uh, so, so what, what are we doing with our city what it, does that is that development I, I think development would be developing the needs of the people in the city and not developing uh speculative real estate um for foreign investors I think it's also it's robbing uh, it's robbing the country's potential uh, tourism present and future. And I I saw a bunch of students I talked with uh, up north in Byblos, and I was just looking and I think wow there could be a thriving uh, archaeological career base here uh, working with UNESCO or working with a lot of NGOs or or just preservation, other museums around the world who are interested in fossils, who are interested in history. There, there's a potential, there's jobs, there's career, there's expertise. All these things are in the offing. Yet, we, it, it seems like, uh, it's just being denied. That, that, that sort of future, those opportunities are totally being denied by this steamroller of, um, of big, big property development, basically. Yeah. And one more thing, one more kind of uh, reasoning behind uh, this kind of the defense of this kind of development is that it creates jobs. But this is also very problematic because these are construction jobs um, that are almost slave labor. Uh, the workers on these sites uh, often come from Syria. Nothing wrong with that, but uh, there's no permit process involved. Uh, they have no health care. They have no plumbing. They're living on sites. Sometimes they're sleeping in, on, on, on pieces of wood. It's about $1 per hour. Is that or less. Yeah, I mean, sometimes. you hear rates of $15, $20, $25 a day, um, maybe a little bit higher, plus or minus. But again, it's not a living wage. Um, these aren't really jobs that are enriching uh, uh, people's. These aren't empowerment jobs. These aren't jobs that are they're good jobs. You know, I mean, they're jobs that people are living in concrete, you know, cinder block uh, 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 makeshift shelters, you know, with tin roofs and no plumbing. And I mean, it's really atrocious the conditions that these workers at these sites. And again, when you you know build this luxury hotel or luxury apartment and, and you know nobody is there, I mean, how many jobs are you really creating here? I mean, I think there could be so much. I think the focus needs to be kind of on technology innovation. That's that's the kind of industry we need to build to create jobs, and we can't rely on just 
you know, fancy projects and, and, and pretend that those are creating sustainable jobs. Again, you know, how, for how many years? A year or two years while the project is being built? I mean, that's not, that's not sustainable. Um, you know, and so, so I, think, I think we've had this general idea of development in Lebanon that, that looks to the wealthy, um, the people who don't, the non-residents. We don't really pay attention to the residents of the, of the, of the city. Um, and, you know, and you have this kind of ecosystem where, okay, somebody has $2 million to buy an apartment and then they're going to have the luxury finishings and the luxury this. So that goes to the luxury dealers. You know, I, mean, I think there's a, a lot of, I think you have to really follow through when you say that this creates jobs and it's, it's progress and that kind of thing and measure it against the kind of contribution that cultural, historical projects can have. Um, uh, you know, to the economy, to tourism, to so many other things. I think it's safe to say that you, you're probably not going to be invited on the board of Damak or as big. But we knew you were coming today, Habib. So I just want to show you we we arranged for a prop uh, outside the studio. Hold on, I'm going to open the door. Let's look at this. Got a crane. We've got a crane right there, full size, very special. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's. Wherever you look in the city, there are, there are cranes um, and there are questions. Everywhere there's a cranes, everywhere. Yeah. I mean, you know what's – answer me this question, okay, because this has been burning in my head for years. There's so, so many beautiful French-style uh, colonial era or, you know, with the sort of terracotta roof – um, Roman or French influence, I'm not sure, gorgeous buildings with beautiful ironwork. All of them, pretty much 90% of them in the city are boarded up. Or they they've got a wall around them. It's like stay out, basically. Is yeah. there is there an agenda to keep people out of these buildings? Because the average European or American or people who are visiting, that's where they'd want to stay. Mm-hmm. That's the place. That's the thing they want to photograph. That's what would draw them mm-hmm. to come here to visit. Is those iconic old architectural styles? But there seems to be. Is there an agenda to basically wipe out those buildings completely? Because that's what it looks like. What's happening? Yeah, and I mean, in a business, a purely business sense, which is what we often go by um, in the post-war environment, the unregulated capital uh, frenzy environment of, of post-war Lebanon, money is 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 has been a great uh, you know a great priority. So uh, an old building means nothing to an investor when um, that space, when if it's a two or three-story building or a four-story building. You can use that plot of real estate. It's so val- valuable. You can build 20 or 30 stories um, and you can make so much more money. So I think, you know, but again, you know, I mean, I think it's also not, not only, you know, do we want to build things that foreigners want to see? I think also there's a rich uh, architectural history and a history of craftsmanship mm-hmm. um, that, that, we, that we could pass on to the next generation and, 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 you know, might inspire them to do something similar or different. Or, you know, it, it's really a, it has a lot of character, I think, um, having an architectural identity in a city or different architectural identities. But um, just to basically raise everything and build prefab um, it's really a shame, you know, in a place with city that's you know five or a uh, thousand years old, and other cities that are ten thousand year old, uh, not 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 far away. Um, really, so much um, to appreciate. So many cities would die to have you know that kind of uh, heritage. It really goes to the the way the city is governed, the way that permits are issued, the municipality of the city, what kind of connections that investors have with the municipality, the kind of deals that are struck, the kind of mindset. Um, that says capital, 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 uh, constantly. The kind of level of transparency, you know, do we really know what's going on uh, in the corridors of government? Do we really know 
um, you know, who's getting the contract, who's getting the deal, what, what was the legislation, you know. And our press, unfortunately, has not always been, you know, it's very a small press, a young press, doesn't really have this great institution of investigative journalism or a culture of uh, that kind of reporting. Um, but fortunately, again, what's happening is that we're seeing a huge level of activism um, in Lebanon where and we're not talking about hippies here. We're talking about working professionals, you know, architects, university professors, uh, urban planners, lawyers um, that are really getting involved in creating all of these new collectives online. Um, and they're talking about, you know, stop, you know, stopping uh, destruction, saving heritage, you know, creating accountable public services. We have this garbage crisis, for example, among so many other problems, you know, electricity, water, uh, where, where people aren't really getting, you know, they pay taxes, but what do they get in return? Um, and people want to know what's going on. And so I think that there is a great movement now in Lebanon, an atmosphere of defiance, an atmosphere of asking questions um, and being able to document things on your phone and then to distribute those things digitally uh, and create kind of vi- viral stories and viral posts that, that make the news and do influence political behavior. Um, and so, and I think the media also in Lebanon is, is picking up on that. A lot of, uh, not a lot, but a few of the mainstream television channels are increasingly looking to what's going on on Facebook and Twitter and, and activist collectives and their websites, and they're picking up those stories. Um, and so I think that it's a state of change. Um, might, not, might not be hard, might be hard to see it, you know, when you're in it, I think. That's the problem with change. But uh, if we look at how, you know, the, the modus operandi 20 years ago, it's, it's really changed and Things aren't as easy as they used to be, uh, but there there are a lot of battles uh, to, to be fought um, to, to to you know to demand uh, accountability and, and 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 you know rights and rights of the city. Now, now the gar- you mentioned the garbage crisis. We'll get to that in a second. I mean, that's one of the stories that made world news. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for Lebanon in the last year, that it took that story to get on the world radar in terms of news coverage. But put that aside for a minute. Earlier you spoke about um, the activist collectives. You spoke about uh, young people getting things to go viral. One of the barriers to really realizing the potential that here is the Internet. So for people who don't, in a nutshell, give us a, give, give us a nutshell explanation of what the situ- you know what the situation with the internet here because if you look at the league tables it's famous oh lebanon's one of the lowest on the league tables for upload and download speeds but it's a lot deeper than that um to tell us what the, what the story is because i think this is one of the things that's holding back the the young people and, and the creative sector and the economy actually you you can't have an economic explosion in the 21st century without that the digital pathways that people need to basically make things go yeah go fast so yeah well as you know and anybody who tries to work in lebanon knows uh, the internet is notoriously slow uh we're talking about average speeds of one to two megabits per second which compares to the u.s where you know average plans are like 25 30 50 more um so it's it's almost like dial-up speed sometimes you know where you can't even i couldn't even load today i couldn't even load videos on instagram we're talking about 20 second Five seconds. I don't mind dial-up speed as long as I get to hear the old modem sound, which, yeah. I, which I love. If I you're mi- nostalgic for that, then you've come to the right place. I miss that. Uh, but- so we're kind of living in the dark ages of Internet. Um, and it really goes back to infrastructure and the problems uh, and the way that it's been managed in the post-war period, the last 20 years since, since the Civil War. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a problem with everything, electricity, with water, with garbage. Um, the infrastructure hasn't been there, um, you know, over the last 20 years. It should have been built uh 
you know, um, but there wasn't a priority to do that. And the system that we have now is kind of very rickety and old fashioned copper uh, wires and, 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 you know, connect and, you know, exchanges that are, uh, you know, kind of loosely wired and, and you've got all kinds of things going underground. There isn't the kind of documentation of, what, what's of this, how things have been wired. Tell us quickly, this black market internet I've, I've been hearing about and somehow it route, it, someone said it routed through the Israeli, uh, intelligence hub or something. What's the story with that? How, how is that possible? Well, there's all kinds of uh, conspiracies. I mean, I, I won't, I, you know, uh, Israel is not far away. I mean, sometimes people might steal internet. Who knows how? Uh, we don't really know the details of this kind of stuff. But uh, most of the internet usage in Lebanon is quote illegal, um, and and it's it's because the state really, you know, hasn't has failed to serve half the country. So the other half of the country um, is is using whatever means necessary. Um, and there are a lot of kind of uh, you know people impromptu as providers. They have a uplink or they or they buy internet from god knows where um and then they sell it to their neighborhood and, and that's kind of the typical what's been going on in lebanon you know uh, when the state fails to provide service it's the same thing with electricity uh you know we have all of these generators uh providers neighborhood generator providers and so you have two phone bills you have two electric bills you have two internet bills and so when the government electricity you know fails you know which is every day you've got the the private electricity that kicks in um, and, and, and so, and the government kind of look, takes a, you know, keeps a blind eye to that kind of thing because it's a big business. Um, the black market and electricity, the black market and internet, you know, these are worth billions of dollars a year in this country. Um, and it just really kind of grows out of a need, um, and a, dis- a deficiency on the government's part. So it's kind of funny to hear the government say, oh, we're cracking down. What do you, I mean, you're not even providing, uh, to crack down. Um, and so that's kind of the way things have, have, have run, um, so, you know, but the state makes a lot of money still with, with off the Internet. I mean, that's one of the biggest revenue generators um, uh, in the country. And it's like $2 billion a year, which is a lot for a country that has a GDP of, of, of you know, of, of only a few tens of billions. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a lot of money to be made, obviously, in, in, in getting everybody connected on, on, the, on a government network. But, again, the government has really kind of failed to do those things, provide those things. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're hoping that, you know, we're always been promised um, that, you know, we're going to have faster Internet soon. We're going to have 24-hour electricity. But those promises often never come true. And the problem is I think we need to see more accountability um, from the press holding these leaders accountable, kind of going back to their speeches and saying, you promised this, you promised that. Where are these things? Unfortunately, the kind of journalism that we have is still kind of just – you know, very general and doesn't really go into details on these things. And the journalists often are not equipped to ask the right questions about, you know, electricity, about Internet, about that kind of thing, and know kind of the details, the technical details of, you know, what's going on, what's not working, you know, who's not doing their job um, kind of thing. And, and so, but again, that's where the activists are coming in handy because people that are engineers, that are uh, lawyers, that know the laws, that know how systems work are kind of getting involved more and more. And these activist collectives, they're having, you know, really big audiences. Some of these pages, you know, have tens of thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands uh, likes. And so the reach of these pages uh, that are publishing news and are investigating and digging up dirt on this kind of stuff is oftentimes bigger than the reach of the mainstream, you know, politically owned media. Um, And so that's taken away a lot of power also from political elites in the country is the fact that – you know they're competing now for airtime. They're competing now for the message. The public a debate, public discourse, is being produced a lot of it by activists, um, and and they're asking tough questions. And we're seeing uh, 
a response to that. We're seeing some politicians actually change their language. I mean, even whether it's sincere or not, that's kind of, I think, significant in itself is that there is a reaction. They are watching what's going on. They are concerned and worried about what's going on. Um, so so there's there's a ray of hope there, I think, too. That's, that's an important point, too, because there, there, there's a journalist uh, from Britain that I spoke to, and, you know, we got into this discussion about, you know, what difference is it going to make? You know, you can expose this, you can expose that, but is it really going to change anything? And he said something very interesting to me. He said, he said you know, it's, it's not about shutting down something. He's, it, it's also about forcing the establishment or the power structure to make a move that they weren't ready to make at that time and that can cause a cascading effect of of causes and effects that weren't planned for that are in the advantage of of the people uh who are bringing the issues forward so every it is important to uh to push and it is effective sometimes it's not directly effective like in a hollywood film it's not like aaron brockovich marching up with the with the papers in the hand and it doesn't always work like that it's more sometimes the currents are more subtle yeah, I think, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we often think of the Arab Spring or whatever as a season. I think it's more like climate change. Um, these are subtle things that happen over time. These are new elites are being created. People who have big audiences now are, are, are becoming, uh, are, are, are taking over kind of, um, are, 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 I guess they're, they're trespassing into the space that was once held only by uh, certain feudal and sectarian elites. And what's interesting about these collectives that are coming together over issues, be it archaeology, be it uh, public services, um, is that their, their, their discourse, their discussion, what, what they, the kind of literature that they produce, their posts, um, it's, it's not sectarian. It's about issues. So in a way, it's a kind of a, a post-sectarian practice of politics. It's that's, very that's exciting as well. It's very important in Lebanon because in Lebanon, you know, typically when somebody has the microphone, when somebody is on TV or, or you know, uh, is talking about political issues or public issues, we'll know what their religion is because our, our political system, um, for better or worse, you know, uh, is an archaic one that, that comes from a different time um, when, you know, it's codified by religion. Um, and, and so, but I attend a lot of these activist meetings and I don't know anybody's religion. And that's kind of a great feeling to see people coming together, young people, um, middle-aged people, you know, uh, it takes all ages really, um, that are coming together and, and creating issue-based politics. And I think that's also, we're seeing the politicians reacting to that. We're seeing some politicians actually also kind of shedding their religious talk um, and talking purely about issues, uh, whether they succeed or they fail or they're lying or they're telling the truth or they're, you know, that's almost irrelevant at some point. The actual tone of discussion is really what matters and getting used to that idea of, of talking about issues and not about political, uh, you know, uh, affiliation in terms of partisanship or, uh, or religious affiliation. You know, the party system in Lebanon is very archaic. We, we, these parties come from militias. These were militias. During the war. Yeah. These were guys driving around town with machine guns in the back of pickup trucks. And now they're in parliament wearing suits and ties. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to, a lot to, uh, uh, to change about that. But, and, and that's still the core of our system. Um, but these kind of young professionals, you know, middle-aged professionals that are coming together doing this kind of stuff, they have a different agenda um, that, you know, you might, you might say they're corrupt or they're whatever they might be, but uh, I don't think they're corrupt. I mean, this is the kind of charge that you get. But what, that, what, what matters, I think, is, is we're having a different kind of discussion. Um, and and that's, that's an important first step, I think, uh, toward having a post-sectarian system. And, we, and, and now there are real tangible things. I mean, this isn't just kind of cultural production. This is also, you know, we've seen hundreds of millions of dollars in, in, in massive real estate projects stopped. Um, we've seen uh, 
uh, ministers posting on Facebook and arguing with people on Facebook. And that's really interesting to have, you know, these untouchables kind of commenting on Facebook and just being just a comment and a comment thread. Um, and people, you know, kind of saying, no, you're wrong and debunking them. Uh, publicly, embarrassing them publicly. Uh, we've had a law that was also uh, shot down by activism. That was a, a law that was going to actually hurt the media even more. That was there was going to be a, one. One of our ministers had this idea to do a, a press law where he, he'd register all the websites, have them all register with the government. They tried that in Britain, by the way, and it's 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 put on ice. Well, that was the Levison inquiry. Yeah, was they, they had to re- they wanted bloggers to license they a license to blog basically, so we even have that in in, sure. in Britain as and, well. And 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 just you know the same thing here. People were uh, got uh, organized. They 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 took the bill to pieces. They brought lawyers in. They found out how unconstitutional it was. It contained vague language like you should not. Uh, uh, insult others or have unethical content, whatever that means. Um, and this bill was would create a viral campaign. Um, you know, again, there's grassroots activities, there's offline, online, but the the the, the com- combination of all these things created such so much pressure that the minister basically withdrew this law and never fought for it. And, and no, we don't know. It's, it's gone now. We haven't heard. So there are real tangible things, you know, um, that are worth a lot of money and, and hurt politicians that have happened. Um, in Lebanon um, and a lot of other places too but I think you have to look at the gradual effect and I think what's also interesting is that some groups that don't kind of achieve what they set out to do some of the same people who kind of work in those groups find themselves later in other groups um, and they learn skills uh, that they can be transferred um, you know the Occupy Wall Street movement in the US I think is an interesting example where um, maybe they didn't turn, take over Wall Street Wait a minute. Um, but but they kind of create this language of the 1%, this kind of vocabulary that we see now being a big discourse with Bernie Sanders. So sometimes things don't always happen right away, but you see the effects of it later. Okay, we're going to take a – hold that thought. We're going to take a short commercial break. We're going to get into the subject of public services after the commercial break. I'm here with my guest, Habib Bata, and we're live in the Levant in Beirut. We'll be right back after these messages. This is the Sunday Wire. Stay right there. Tune in Sundays at noon Eastern Time or 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the Sunday Wire for three hours of action-packed talk radio on 21stCenturyWire.com and AlternateCurrentRadio.com. I'm here with my guest. Uh, we're live in Beirut, and I'm here with Habib Bata. He's a journalist and also doing some very interesting stuff. And, and I know, Habib, you really got into this, what they call the garbage crisis. And uh, you're one of the first people, I think, to really put, put a good handle on the You Stink movement. This, is the, this was the name of the movement, was You Stink. And I met some kids down in Tyre who would travel up all the way just to be a part of this in Beirut. They're musicians. And um, and I just thought it was incredible, uh, this issue, of all issues, that is engaged um, people, you know, especially young people. And this reminded me, you know, there's a lot of Indian reservations in the um, southwest U.S. And I was talking to one lawyer who is a Native American lawyer, and this was a big issue when they were setting up their governments, which is, how do you define what's a sovereign nation? And he said that there's four things that a sovereign nation needs to do. One of them is is provide water or access to drinkable or clean water. The other one is maintain the roads, okay? The other one is provide power. 
and uh, then provide safety and settle disputes. But he said actually the most important thing is to collect the garbage. And so this was something they were struggling with about uh, 30 years ago. Some reservations still struggling with that. So he said to me, he said, if you want sovereignty, you've got to be ready to be, you know, to be sovereign. You've got to do the sovereign things. And one of them in the top five is above military and everything is garbage collection. Yeah. And here you go. I mean, you don't realize how important garbage collection is until it stops being collected. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's what happened uh, last summer uh, when a landfill, the, we have one major landfill uh, that's out of town and um, it's been used, overused, uh, was supposed to close years ago, never closed down. People protested. They blocked the roads. The Minister of Environment said, we should close this. So he closed it, but there was no alternative. So we had no alternative landfill in the country. So uh, the garbage just started piling up on the streets, um, and the garbage collection company couldn't take it anywhere, so it left it there. Um, and the stench was, was horrible. Uh, people started to burn the garbage, um, and that's caused a lot of health problems. Uh, there's carcinogens now in the air from burning garbage. Um, the government has tried to hide the garbage, you know, pile it up in parking lots, uh, pile it up in, in the forests. Um, and, but the activists uh, were able to reveal recently through, through drone uh, they had the activists had their own drones. They're able to to reveal all these big garbage piles. And there's an article on your website, uh, Beirut Report. It's Game of Drones is the headline. If you go to the show page, click through Habib's blog. Uh, was really a news website more than a blog now, but it's the Game of Drones, and you got the footage that went viral. Oh yeah. I mean the guard when the Guardian. Uh, posted that everyone saw it. Yeah. And it was just people were like, wow, and that was powerful. Yeah, I mean, so so people um, came together on this issue, um, and and you know, activists use their tools, their digital documentation tools, um, which not only are just cell phones and and you know, tweets and and, and memes and, and that kind of thing, but they they use drones um, now, mm-hmm. and you're able to kind of uh, look in places where the government doesn't want you to look. Uh, when you have a drone, you can kind of go over buildings, see things that are hard to get to by foot. Um, and they were able to kind of produce this video. And what they did is they produced a parody video. So earlier um, this year, the, the Ministry of Tourism in Lebanon, and I think like all ministries of tourism around the world now are discovering the use of drones. And they think that's a great way to show the beauty of their countries. Um, you'll see all these countries like, you know, uh, in Central Asia, Kazakhstan, whatnot, whatnot, using these drones to show how beautiful their mountains and their sea are. Um, and Lebanon government had the same kind of idea. Um, so they had this video with you know beautiful rivers and the beautiful coastline, Mediterranean coastline of Lebanon. Um, uh, but it was made several months before the garbage crisis happened, um, and it had this kind of you know new age music with birds chirping. So the activists said, "Well, we're going to make our own drone video of the garbage dumps." Um, and so they basically took the same music of birds chirping and I don't know what, and they showed all of these you know rivers of garbage. You kind of went building almost pyramids of garbage. Uh, uh, that, that are being built, uh, that are being you know piled up across the city, um, and so they were able to kind of really hack the narrative, um, and 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 you know spoof the government. Um, the government, the minister of tourism, got really mad, and he said he was going to sue the activists for copyright infringement of using his music, um, and that they you know that they quote you know showed a bad image of the country. Well, that's that it's a realistic image at the same time. Um, so then he was kind of laughed off about that. The international press, you know, saw how this this video was going viral. 
Um, the international press picked it up. Some places like The Guardian did a piece of The Guardian, and they did a mashup of the tourism video and the garbage video. It was really powerful, and that kind of you know had a million views in a few days. So um, another one of these tools, disposal of activists, is this documentation. Now, what's happening with the garbage? Um, you know, it, it's uh, it's one of these things that 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 you know, if you don't have a strong state, like you said. Uh, these are the problems that happen. And, and I think with the garbage really kind of got people out on the streets, people started to kind of say, well, we've had enough. Um, this is the last straw. Uh, you know, we dealt with electricity. We dealt with water. This is, a human, this is a human rights issue, actually. This is like it, it can affect the health of the entire population. Yeah. This isn't like, uh, you know, a rolling blackout where you can get by with candles or a generator. Yeah. This is like it can adversely affect everybody's health and i've felt since i've been here a few weeks and i i'm telling you it's tough yeah in certain areas yeah it it really the stench is unbelievable in some areas um you just can't even breathe uh again you know scientists uh public health officials have been studying this issue they found out that um because people are burning the garbage uh it's causing a high amount of carcinogens in the air uh there's fears that the garbage the sewage and whatnot will leak into the ground uh, and th- to the water table um, that will affect the agriculture of the country. So it's really a public health disaster. Um, and, and the government's kind of, you know, dragging its feet. Um, we don't know what's going on in terms of there's not really a lot of transparency and they keep saying they're going to fix the problem. It's not. So it's really a problem of governance. You know, we have these ex-militia leaders um, and billionaires. What a great marriage of ex-militia leaders and billionaires running this government. Um, and they're, they're pretty, they've proved themselves to be pretty incompetent. Um, at providing the most basic services, mm-hmm. uh, drinkable water. We have to buy bottled water in Lebanon. Uh, you can only shower with the water. That's when you get it. Oftentimes, you have to buy water from a private water truck. Uh, electricity, you know, it goes out every day. You've got to have a backup generator. You've got to buy uh, backup coverage uh, from a neighborhood provider. Um, those things we've kind of dealt with through through those through our pocketbook. But there's no ba- there's no alternative garbage collection, um, and so that's I think what really brought people down to the streets. And we saw really big protests over the last six months, kind of in the shadow of what's happening in the Arab Spring, what's been happening in Lebanon over the past several years. And and this was kind of a I think a an amalgamation of so many kind of pent up feelings and 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 new abilities to document to shame people. It's come out on the streets and and, and document that. And so we've seen these a group called You Stink um, uh, in Arabic. It's the letter Hetkom. Um, it, it means uh, it means basically that your your stink is is being emitted. Um, you stink, and, and and that's not just um, it's a metaphor for more than garbage. It means you know you you militia ex militia leaders, you you billionaires that rule us, you all stink uh, because you haven't been able to provide these basic services. So people came together on that issue, and 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 that's created collectives again of, of, of engineers and people, and also just kind of young people and activists who are fed up. They want to see change. They want to see accountability. And they've been able to kind of insert themselves into this political process of the garbage. You know, so there were a few tenders that were um, made to certain companies to pick up this garbage. Um, and the activists did a little bit of research. And they went, on, they went on Google Maps. And they found that, that one of these companies that won the bid, which was a Dutch company, um, they punched in their address in Google Maps. And they found that it was the address of somebody's private home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they took the screenshots of this private home. They published them on on Facebook. The post went viral, and, and lo and behold, a few uh, days later, we were told that the the, the contract had been canceled for this company. Um, so there is an accountability going on uh, now. They've reached a new deal to kind of put the garbage in old landfills that were closed since the war years. Um, there's a lot of fear about they're very close to the, the to the sea. Um, they're on the shoreline, and they're still fighting over that. 
Um, and again, we don't always see complete success in these issues. I think the, the garbage activism probably has been a little bit less effective than the other kind of issues I brought up earlier, where we had actual projects stop. But it's a very difficult issue to deal with. Um, you know, and so we're seeing we're seeing all kinds of activism, though. I mean, I think you know you mentioned there's also a creative activism. Um, uh, you know, where people are using art, occupying spaces, um, finding creative ways to to shame politicians, uh, you know, to question these narratives of development uh, and real estate projects, spray painting on the walls of some of these real estate projects um, and kind of questioning their claims of building a better tomorrow and all these generic kind of phrases that you see on billboards all over the world when it comes to real estate. Um, it's just not true in Beirut because this isn't for the locals. This is There's some the intelligent rebuttals going on on the graffiti side, you know, and these are smart. These are not kids that are just into vandalism. Yeah. There's a, they have a, a political idea yeah. and they're challenging the ideas that are being put forth by this neoliberal um you know steamroller progress as you as you described yeah. it earlier so this isn't just about spray painting on walls mm-hmm. they are communicating th- they're resisting basically yeah. through through the language and i i'm kind of inspired by a lot of the graffiti i see it, it's very vibrant here different styles different political movements some of them are symbolic some of them are real some of them are paying homage to the past but there's a, a fantastic very rich tapestry on the street and uh and i think it's i i think it's very interesting if you pay attention you there's a lot more there than people um most people don't pay attention to it they just walk by yeah. or if they're driving but if you really pay attention to it you know there's people behind those and i i think it's more than interesting actually yeah and, and i mean it, it's it's on the streets and 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 a lot of the vocabulary that's coming out of this kind of graffiti and 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 and, and it kind of goes back to the group collectives that are being formed and the kind of language that's being used about urban space rights of the city um you know we have a right to the coast we have a right to to to, to be part of the city to, to know who our leaders are we have a right to question the media um we have a right to question uh developers and so a lot of that's coming, and it's, and it's graffiti on the streets, and it's also online uh, with the kind of memes that are being generated, uh, memes that make fun of politicians, that make fun of their speeches. Um, you know, we had a really – and it's cultural events too, you know, and it, um, that are creating this discourse um, that's very new in Lebanon. It's not about a cult of personality by your favorite militia leader and, you know, what his religion is and the idea that he has – defending Christian rights or Muslim rights or whatever that means, um, this kind of demagoguery, uh, that, that, that's, 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 the, that's the discourse that we have, a discourse of demagoguery. But here come these new ideas, new concepts, um, not necessarily always new, but kind of things that got brushed under the carpet after the war. Uh, you know, we did have a history of public space in Beirut. People did go and picnic and, and use the space, and people did have green space, and people did enjoy their city, I think, a lot more. Um, but it's, it's, again, the, the, the war kind of created this excuse develop everything and sell everything and build 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 towers and whatnot um and i think we lost a lot of that and that's a lot that's being reintroduced now um and the idea of transparency and accountability uh, being able to ask questions all that's that's happening and and so i think in some of these cases we had a really interesting uh case that came out of the garbage movement and so you know the you think there were a lot of spin-off groups too i think it's very important to talk about how you know one movement created other movements and so once People went down to the streets and they were protesting. You know, the police were very um, were very rough. Uh, they they sprayed water cannons. They used tear gas. They beat up some someone uh, was was critically injured. Um, and and so uh, other groups started to actually. You know, when people got arrested, there was groups that came out and said, "We want those people to be released." So there was a group called We Want Accountability. 
Badan Hasib in Arabic. And that group is now all about accountability and transparency in the court system in the country. There are other groups um, that looked at, you know, uh, what's going on in the streets, you know, garbage, environmentalism, recycling. Uh, we never recycled in this country. Um, and now there's so much talk about recycling. There are municipalities and small parts of the country that are doing their own recycling. There's innovation going on. We're having a conversation about how, what we do with our waste. Uh, you know, for decades, we've been throwing waste in the valleys and the mountains, ruining that picturesque image of the country. And finally, you know, it's taken this kind of crisis to get people really having that conversation, doing that. I think we have kind of embarked on a new recycling uh, discourse in the country. Um, what I wanted to say, too, is, you know, there's so many things that have come out of this kind of Houston thing. Um, another thing is that there was, um, you know, one, one of the businessmen, the Chanel distributor in Lebanon, and they had a, a business uh, meeting, a, pri- a, a press conference of business leaders, and they complained about the protests. They said that the protesters were dirty um, and that they were uh, dirtying up the city um, because they were protesting in front of the prime minister's office, which is in this very fancy part of the city. Um, they're saying that the people that were, you know, kind of vendors selling sandwiches and water and whatnot, they said, you know, this, 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 this businessman said, you know, you guys are hurting our business, and, you know, this is not a place for cheap products. You know, cheapo products. Abu Rakhusa in Arabic, they use this word. Um, and, and, and so, you know, and, and people reacted to that. And they, and they said, well, what do you mean? You know, I mean, this, this city is before the people. Why can't we have street vendors? Why can't we have anything that's affordable? So in the city of, in the, in the downtown part of Beirut today, you can't get a falafel sandwich. You can't get a, a, a cheap meal. You can't get a cheap water. You've got to go to some fancy restaurant and pay $20, $30, hundreds of dollars maybe per table, um, you know, to have a, a nice meal for, for a group or a family. Um, and so what happened was this, this, this speech that he made kind of went viral. Um, and it started a hashtag and a movement called Abu Rahusa, hashtag Abu Rahusa, which means, you know, cheapo, hashtag cheapo, basically in Arabic. And people said, we want, we want to, we want to have things for all people in the city. We were sick of this elite uh, approach, this attitude that says, you know, you, you can't, uh, we have to have everything that has to be really fancy and classy for the foreigners and forget about the locals. And so what they did was they organized Abu Rahusa, you know, a cheapo flea market. Uh, in downtown Beirut, they had a Facebook page, and then people came down. There were people, there were barbers, there were people selling books, everything for a dollar. And so, for a brief moment, we kind of returned to the old Beirut. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a huge crowds that came on. The TV stations came out, and they filmed it, and people were on TV talking about how they felt that they were they had been robbed by this uh, uh, development process, and you know that really threw a lot of people out of their businesses and took over the city center to build these this kind of towers and whatnot. Um, and there are a lot of, uh, and, and that brings up the issue of how this happened. Um, you know, the company that did this, uh, how were people fairly compensated? Most people that I talk to say no. Most people that you ask will say no. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, it was very interesting to say that it created this opportunity. And then so they started doing a series of these abrahus of these flea markets downtown, you know, and bring it back. And it's actually illegal to have flea markets downtown. It's actually illegal to be a street vendor downtown. They've kind of, it's so corporate, you know, it's kind of like a, it's like a kind of like an open air mall. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 masquerades as a city where you can't have live performances. People, you can't play music. You can't, um, you know, have you know, people uh, street vendors. And so they kind of defy this this atmosphere of defiance and said, "No, we are going to have Abu Rahusa." And so people made fun of this businessman, the Chanel distributor. They put his face on memes. They put him in a bathtub full of money. Um, they, they 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 you know they they made fun of his 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 products. Um, and people started to come up with their own songs about it. They started, you know, there was memes like, you know, straight out of Abu Rahusa, kind of like straight out of Compton. Um, and they, and they, so, so there was so much going on there. And, and I think memes, too, have become a very interesting thing. And, and just, you know, just the ability to kind of 
what these groups do is is they you know these groups that go online they're almost like news they're media um, they're publishing news. They have videos of what's going on. They have more info sometimes than the, the news media does. Um, and so just to create these outlets on its own, to be able to broadcast, to reach hundreds of thousands of people um, you know, with a viral post, that's very powerful. You know, because media power is political power. I mean, you know, if a politician doesn't have a camera to speak to, we don't even know if he spoke. Uh, we'd never know about it. Um, and so that media power, you know, that, that ability to enter the public consciousness and to, to speak out um, is really important. And so, you know, some activists have been interviewed. They've, they've spoken freely on TV about how they've been tortured in police stations. That kind of language we've never saw on TV before. But again, some of the media is looking at this activism and is interested in it, and they're covering it. And so they're giving a platform that they reserve, used to be only reserved to politicians. Now people are coming out having activist press conferences with their own slideshows and PowerPoints and their testimonies of police brutality. Um, and all of that is, is really kind of changing, I think, uh, the political power. So there's really so much to talk about, whether it's cultural events, whether it's, you know, uh, activists have been launching lawsuits, they've been discovering, you know, uh, uh, discrepancies in laws, they've been going back in the books, they've been going back years. Um, so it's legal, it's, it's cultural, um, it's, it's, you know, environmental. Um, so all of that language and all of that activity, all that cultural production um, is really influencing political discourse. I, th- I like that, you know, the term you said before, hack the narrative. And that's, that's so important. And, and this is happening all over the world. Uh, it's happening here with what you've described, but it's really also happening all over the world. And it, it is a lot of power, especially in a, a country like this where the narrative is, the, the mainstream discourse has been so narrow. Um, and, and when, when chill, I met a bunch of kids from a hacker space. I remember a couple of years ago it was around in Jamaisi around mm-hmm. the corner here. And I'm looking at these kids and basically there's no barriers for them as to what they want to do or, or invent or create. The only thing that's really holding them back maybe is the bandwidth mm. or the internet speeds of really being able to go absolutely explode. Yeah. Um, and I, I, it just. They've done a lot with, with what they have, which is pretty remarkable. It, it is. It is. But you can see that is the, see, these guys are the, the future millionaires. Of if they if they can have the infrastructure and the tools, mm. you know, you look at the Silicon Valley. It was Revenge of the Nerds. They took over, basically, yeah. and they're still in power. But it was there then the innovators, the uh, the risk takers, yeah. the mavericks. Yeah. They they ascended to that yeah. position, and this can happen all in in places like Beirut. But again, you need the infrastructure. Yeah. You need to open up the 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 bandwidth, the the yeah. pathways. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're struggling with that very low speed. I mean, I think if we had higher speed, we could do more video. Um, the videos that have come out are kind of grainy and they're, and they're kind of uh, very short. Um, but I think, you know, video is really revolutionizing the way that we communicate um, and, and what we do all day on the Internet, that kind of thing, what, what we're attracted to, um, what kind of way we want to communicate and, and, and draw audiences. So I think that that would really help a lot. And there are a lot of videos that get out. Um, you just kind of... Uh, it costs a lot. It's not really accessible to everybody. Um, a lot of these protests are very middle class. Um, they, they, you know, a lot of the, the poor can't really always has the time uh, or the, the means to participate in some of that production. But they are increasingly. I mean, I think cell phone penetration and smartphones have really leapfrogged a lot of people in that way where you see poor construction workers who don't even have plumbing on, on their phone. Uh, on their smartphone, you know, scrolling through uh, pages and whatnot. So um, it, it's still a challenge. And I think even when you have these new elites, there's a challenge there too. How are you going to hold them accountable too? Um, but I think that we have to accept to some extent that there will be, you know, smaller groups that start things and that things kind of cascade 
over time. Um, but it, it's it's still going to be a concern. But that um, you know the idea of corruption. This is a big issue, um, especially here. I, I hear it all the time, and in Syria as well. And there's people there arguably that will argue that the the, the war in Syria, the, the 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 one of the catalysts for it was corruption that started the you know this process. And this is something that's like post-war. This is some and post-colonial, post-war. This is a you know you look at Iraq. You know, you know the United States were flying in pallets of shrink-wrapped cash hmm. um, to the point where you, if you wanted to be in the new Iraqi army, you, could, you had to buy your way in as a general or a, a corporal or whatever. And different ranks had different prices because once you got in, they would, you know, say, order, get aid for 100,000 soldiers and they only had 50,000. They'd pocket the difference. And so the the intervention from Europe, from America, has created the, uh, what do you call it, the biosphere for corruption. And so this is a big issue. But I think what you're talking about is, you know, there's a potential to transform the mindset. Mm. And I think that's that's where the real important conversation is. And I think you've described a number of things yeah. that it looks like th- this is like a major revolution in thinking, basically, yeah. for this generation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, all, all political change, you know, we talk about the parallels between the West and, and the Middle East, and sometimes we don't really see them, I think. Sometimes we expect things to change overnight. We say, oh, if the revolution hasn't happened in two or three years, then it failed. The Arab Spring failed. You know, again, I don't think it's a season. I think it's climate change. I mean, that's how things happen all over the world. Europe wasn't built in a day. Rome wasn't built in a day. The United States didn't just appear. I mean, there was a lot of genocide and blood and horrible things that happened to get to the point where everything is cool and everybody's peaceful. That wasn't always the case. So uh, France, whatever. So revolutions and, 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 and ways of, of, of changing from you know armed groups and to, to government take many, many, many years. Um, and I think we have to look at the Middle East or wherever like we look at any other place. Um, and, and in some ways, what's interesting about what's happening in the Middle East today is the kind of empowerment, um, the kind of what it means to have that kind of connectivity, that kind of ability to reach audiences and document things is, is really significant in a place where you have that kind of uh, archaic militia political system where you can actually do post-sectarian things. Uh, that's really impactful. And in some ways, we're seeing what's happening here. The, the activists, the boldness, the, the creativity is influencing what's happening in the West in some ways. You know, Occupy Wall Street, I think, came you know, in, in this atmosphere of Arab Spring um, and other, other protests that have happened in other parts of the world. So uh, in some ways, there's a lot of innovation going on here. And I think people need to look at it in a more nuanced way and kind of stop looking, thinking about this binary, like, did it fail? Did it pass? You know, it's kind of very Orientalist. I, I don't even like that term Arab Spring because it, firstly, because not everybody here is Arab, um, but, you know, what's happened in Turkey, you know, with the green space protest that started with, I think it was a park in the middle, of the, with maybe yeah. one tree. Yeah. It was cut, I can't remember. But, you know, t- uh, the West like like to simplify uh, how they're, you know, characterizing anything in the Middle East area as being Arab, mm. but it's a lot more. The, the tapestry is much more complex and rich than that. And um, and there's there's politics underneath each of these movements, and each country is, has a unique set of problems at that time that they're trying to figure out. So it, I, I like what you said about this is a this is an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. Like uh, in, you know, in the United States, uh, the people look back 1776. I see this a lot. You know, with sort of the con- mm-hmm. the Tea Party, 
factions in America. Oh, if we can just reset the clock back to 1776 when the founding fathers were marching around Philadelphia, but it wasn't it wasn't all that great? Actually, there were people dying in the streets. They had a huge uh, underclass of an immigrant managing the immigration. Then the Civil War happened, and the whole basically half the country was soaked in blood. Yeah, you know, this was the first hundred years of the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just Russia is another example. The Soviet Union dissipates and is replaced by a federation. They're in their infancy. They're only 25 years in mm-hmm. as a country, and people were, are expecting, well, that's just not going well in Russia, but, you know, it's only 25 years after the Soviet Union. So give, give them another 25 yeah. at least before you say, you know, write them off, basically. Yeah. Because when, I, when you meet Russian people, it's, it's becoming a very sophisticated, very, very European in many ways, um, mm. uh, the millennials from that country coming through, and, and Lithuania and Estonia. So again, but from a Western Orientalist lens, it's uh, they, th- this is a problem still in in the West. Is this kind of wanting to, uh, you know, characterize those things as as other or not as advanced or yeah. needing the help of, you know, we need the EU to come in and fix things, yeah, or we need NGOs from America to fix things and so forth. So we're we're still kind of handicapped with this situation at mm-hmm. the moment, but I think we're coming out of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, let's you know, let's not forget that the colonies built the mainland much more than the mainland built the colonies. I mean, the kind of the amount of in the Industrial Revolution was funded by a lot of the gold and silver that was taken from those places. So uh, you know, there was a lot of pillaging to get to the point where we are. Um, and, and a lot of uh, so we have to look at history and kind of I think be a little bit more humble when it comes to our expectations um, for things and, and kind of you know I think in every in every really kind of we get very cynical I think sometimes um, even people here uh, oftentimes people here get very cynical um, and I and I think and it, and it troubles me because I think you know when, when you get cynical you kind of get this in this paralysis uh, and, and I think oftentimes no matter how bad things look. There are a lot of other things happening at the same time that are, 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 are doing something about it, um, whether they be small or big, whatever they're doing. I think it's good to kind of highlight those things. And so I try to do my work is when I report on a problem, I also report on people that are doing something about it. And I think that's kind of the difference between, you know, being foreign correspondent where you're just writing about about people, not writing for people. I think, you know, the best journalism is really writing for your community um, and kind of letting them know things that might help them, that might empower them. Um, and and one, one of those things, obviously, is, you know, here are the groups that are doing something. Do you want to get involved? Here's what they're doing. So that's why I kind of really want to focus on covering a lot of these up-and-coming groups because I want people to, to, to know more about them so that they could potentially, you know, brainstorm, you know, contribute here and there. Really, there's a role for everyone um, today, uh, you know, every citizen, no matter where they live, and in, in, in kind of calling for accountability. And, and, and you have the means now. You know, simply with a, with a phone, um, you can you know take a picture, create a post, ask a few questions, do a quick Google search to get a few important questions, and say, well, why is this going on? And who's responsible for that? Um, and so I think it's it's there's a great opportunity. Um, we don't always have to be totally cynical. I mean, things do look really bad sometimes, but there are a lot of people that we shouldn't forget about that are um, putting their heads together and doing innovative things. Yeah, and and I think. What I like about your work, which is interesting, is it's you've really localized the coverage, but it in a way it's kind of but it's global is what you shout. So you're covering local, you're shouting global, basically. And I'm have you gotten a lot of have you gotten any feedback or any have people from other countries or people contacted you because they have similar 
issues going on in there. They must be looking at this and thinking, wow, because the way you lay it out is quite rich um, with the different things going on. So, I mean, have, have you had, have you been contacted by anybody in other countries or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, well, I've been doing my research in Oxford, and I've I've been looking at other movements, and 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 um and and people are interested in that, and, and they get in touch, and also a lot of Lebanese diaspora community people that have been forced to leave this country. You know, we have more, you know, two or three times the population of the country living outside the country because of so many wars, um, and political problems and corruption. People have had to leave to get jobs, poverty, etc. And now they, 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 they've always wanted to kind of keep in touch um, and know what's going on. And so because I write in English, I'm able to reach a big audience of the diaspora community. They're very interested in, in, in contributing. But, yeah, I think a lot of this, this stuff is it's not, you know, I try to focus on, on Beirut, where I am, where I live, what I know. I think a lot of the problem with journalism in the Middle East is that people are trying to hop around all over the place and think, you know, because they can hire a driver and ask a few questions and they know how to put together, you know, thousand words story uh, and they're good at paragraph structure. They can just go anywhere and write anything. Well, that's really not productive a lot of the time. Um, it becomes this kind of coverage that doesn't really tell you anything uh, uh, deeper than, than really basic uh, things that happened that day and, and create this kind of cynical feeling. So I, I want to stay local. I want to talk about what I know. Um, and, and that I think is, it's, there's a lot of universality, universal, uh, meaning in that. And that, um, it, again, it comes down to accountability, governance, who's in charge, you know, and, and we could use a lot of that in the U S uh, as well. And, and, and other places where I feel like sometimes you look at the local news coverage in the U S and they're not asking the right questions. Um, they're talking about a bear or I don't know what, or a dog or something, you know, on the loose and, you know, well, How's the mayor spending your money? You know, how is how is how is your state government working? How is uh, Congress working? You know, where is your tax money going? You know, what wars are you funding? Where is, who's paying for those bullets and those bombs? And why is it coming out of your paycheck? I mean, so there's so this this is the kind of universal I think accountability kind of an issue based and and having the right questions I mm-hmm. think and that's really something that really crosses all kinds of borders. Um, it, you know, and that's really I think when journalism can be the most effective when you don't just it, not any question is a good question. Unfortunately, I think we're kind of taught that, but really to have good questions, you've got to do good research. You've got to kind of drill down and get to the bottom of things, so to speak, um, and find out where are the question marks, where are the gray areas, where where are the unknowns. You know what what you know what doesn't make sense with this story. I think, and you kind of get deep enough to a point where okay, you you say this today, but three years ago you said that. And, 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 you, and you promised this and, you know, who, who signed the contract and what's the relationship between the people um, in power and the people in the private sector, public, you know. So I think all of those, those kind of detailed questions, that's kind of the takeaway um, from, from what's happening in, in Beirut. And, and, and also uh, your, your, your right um, and your obligation, I think, sometimes to ask those kind of questions um, and to do that minimal amount of research. You can find out a lot online. Um, uh, a lot is out there to be used. I know I just did a report recently on a lot of plans that were were, were supposed to be uh, of, of 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 parks and public spaces that were supposed to come up in Beirut that never were built. Um, and these plans are all out there on the internet. They were sold to the public in the nineties. You know, we're going to have great parks and you know waterfalls and all these places. That's one thing I can't. There's only, I've only seen two parks yeah. in Beirut, in in uh, one in near Hamra. Um, and then in, near the bank of Lebanon, there's a little park there. Yeah. And I saw kids playing there. And there was another one out towards uh, Raushi in, yeah. in that area where the 
the big supermarkets are. But that was it. I have, and in the center, there's what looks, it could be a park, but it's just got buildings dotted around it. But there is no green space, yeah. hardly at all, yeah. in the city. And so there's nowhere to escape from the traffic or nowhere to escape. And that to me is kind of concerning, you know. Yeah. For- I mean, people, people, you know, feel pressure. They need, they need to have that, you know, those kind of, human rights i think you know to be able to breathe and, and to relax and, and 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 take some time off um and so but online i was able to find you know all of these plans that they had sold to the public and you know kind of just forgot about and I went back to the same place and they're all like abandoned today um and so i was able to come together compile all this stuff online the old maps with the new maps and show hey what happened to that project um and you could do that in your town or your city probably wherever you live you can find things that are on paper or or, and, and things float on the internet for a while. I think that's mm-hmm. also very useful. Is how we we take parts. We take a video from here. We take a you know a, a newscast. We take a a print report. We take a you know on the scene you know citizen journalism, putting it all together uh, and creating these kind of um, assemblages of information and narratives. Uh, so you have a lot at your disposal. I think is, is what I'm trying to say. You know, you, you were saying before about um, you know a Western journalists coming and hiring a driver, and so I met one of these drivers recently. He told me quite a few stories. One of them he said was this was about I think it was about ten years ago, and so he he was asked to arrange a meeting with the, one of the Hezbollah leaders, and it was from a very well known newspaper in uh, in America. And so he arranged it, and he came. And he said the the first question they asked the Hezbollah, the American journalist, the first question he asks is, "Why do you hate us?" That was the first question. I thought, "Oh my goodness, you go all that way, you know." And so this, there's a crisis in journalism, especially in the last couple of years. And I think uh, Iraq and Syria and some of these big events have really exposed. Uh, this kind of collusion between big government and big media. They're not, a, you know, so the question is, well, are you going to use Sidewinder missiles or pavement missiles? I mean, because Sidewinders are more effective in that sort of combat theater. Instead of asking the question, well, what are, you know, what are you doing there in the first place? Yeah. You know, it's a, there is a crisis of journalism and a lot of Robert Perry from Consortium News, he broke the Iran Contra story in the 80s. He start, he left the sort of, quote, mainstream, uh, I guess he still reports for AP, but he wrote a great article this week, and he broke down this kind of, it is a crisis of thinking, or I don't know what it is, there's an alternate reality that's been constructed mm. with corporate media that seems to be very detached from maybe the principles of the fourth estate, mm. or what, what people would expect the press to be or do and the Washington Post will put them in that category too mm-hmm. um, all all these uh, big media outlets so and, and and at the same time we have this emerging force which is really coming up from the grassroots and it's it's uh, hundreds of thousands of you know websites blogs yeah. people yeah. really um, and it's messy you know I mean it, this is not I think that just because something happens online we can't expect it to succeed just like something happens offline we don't expect everything offline, every collective to succeed in the way that we expect. Sometimes yeah. they, you know, bring forth things that we don't expect, um, or, or or come years later. Um, and so I think we have to have a, a, a reasonable kind of outlook and not get too excited and say, you know, this is going to be a panacea, it's going to fix everything. No, it's it's messy. Um, but I think within it, you can find some interesting trends going on and, and ways of. Of, of, of talking and asking um, that are being popularized. But, I mean, you, you say this thing about, you know, why do they hate us? And this is the question that you get a lot. And, and I think that 
that kind of question is the wrong is also a question that's not based on research. Mm. Um, it's a question that that kind of just comes out, you know, of the blue and just as if you know all things happen in a vacuum, as if we were just minding our own business, whistling while we work, <laughs> and then you just came and attacked us, as if you know complete ignorance of the decades yeah. of manipulation and, and that's been going on and the real involvement, the money. Um, the weapons, the coup d'etats, the, all those involvements in those years, uh, I, I find journalists don't do their research about that. They come to a place like Lebanon, too, or, or what's happening in Syria, and they say things like, oh, it's a sectarian civil war. Well, I, don't, I mean, I don't think so. First of all, it's not a civil war because it involves all the countries in the world. We don't make weapons in the Middle East, last I checked. We don't make mm-hmm. bombs and we don't make bullets, so they've got to come from somewhere. So there are people that are involved in that, so it's a, inter- a very international conflict in that sense. And also this idea that being sectarian, you know, really kind of, you don't really understand, you, you have a very um, uh, little research you've done to, 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 to think that, you know, uh, 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 it's a war over religion. People aren't fighting over verses. Um, they're not. They're not fighting over authenticity. They're fighting over land. They're fighting over power. Um, and, and these these things uh, transcend religion just because there is some kind of uh, religious communities, and that's just kind of a, a, a category that's been used. We kind of forget the bigger picture, which is money, power, um, all that going on. So you know, uh, that's so an e- to me, that's it's, an a geo- easy- it's a geopolitical war more than a sectarian war. That's an easy out that I run into a lot with people. Oh, it's religion, and we need to get rid of religions because people kill over religion. Actually, you're right. It's majority of wars are fought over land, property, yeah. things, material yeah, things. Yeah. And guess what? A lot more violence is done in the name of uh, secular interests, you know, corporate interests, national interests, defense interests, than is done in the name of religious interests. I mean, it doesn't even doesn't even. There's no comparison uh, between the amount of wars and deaths that are caused, you know, by quote unquote, you know, secular governments um, and these and what's going on in religion. So again, that just takes the kind of research of uh, not even the research of the Middle East, but research of the United States, uh, you know, and, and foreign policy the last twenty, thirty years. Uh, Water rights, oil rights, gas yeah. rights. This is not. These aren't yeah. religious things. Yeah. And, and it's so, it's so true in other issues in the United States as well. You know, talk about Black Lives Matter. Talk about you know why do we have why are people poor? Are they are they poor because they're lazy or are they poor because you know a lot of really bad things have happened in recent memory when it comes to mortgages, when it comes to discrimination, when it comes to public uh, resources being allotted. You know, again, doing that research and finding out this is not just something that just happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of something a lot bigger. It's systemic. It's institutional. It's yeah. generational as well. Sure. And, uh, yeah, that, that, that's the difficult conversation. But uh, I think we're, we're, we're in a better chance uh, with information on demand to have long-form content, to have long-form. And like this show is a three-hour show. We have normally an hour to an hour and a half segment with, mm-hmm. with our main guest. Yeah. And I think this is something that would not fly on some other radio stations. Yeah. But because we, this is what we started our thing on, yeah. we said we're going to do it this way and we're going to keep it that way. It's always going to be, as long as we're doing it here, then it's always going to be like that. But mm-hmm. it's not. it doesn't fit into the... To, you know, if you listen to talk radio in America, yeah. they don't have more than 15 minutes straight without advert breaks. Mm-hmm. And then some of the advert breaks are 8 to 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening in your car, you, you can totally lose train of whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's all sound bites. It's quick hits. It's, you know. Yeah. So, but being able to flesh this stuff out and online as well in text form, in article form with hyperlinks, this, this is a great uh, learning environment. Of There's course. so much alternative media. I think in general, whether but, but, it's short form or long form, 
there's just so many more outlets for people to find information and get information from the ground from people that are experiencing it. But it's not alternative, and this is the thing that's yeah. interesting. It's now media. True. So, so you're True. competing. Your bloggers competing with CNN, competing with yeah. uh, the the Times, uh, you know, competing yeah. with the Daily Mail. Everyone's competing in the same space. Sure. This is interesting, although it's a messy space, like yeah. you said, and it's it's populated with just about everything you can imagine. Sure. But um, I think, and I, I always encourage uh, people who are independent. So don't think of yourself as alternative. You know, try to have a good standard. But you're in the media. You're in the scrum. You're competing for eyeballs and for attention. You're competing for that ten minutes waiting at the airport or at the bus stop with the same with the Guardian, and you you have a shot. So put your ideas out. It is it's a marketplace of ideas as well as information. But you have a chance to get your ideas out. And so I I, I don't want people to get ghettoized sometimes by terms, but it it is. There's dominant players in this space, obviously, mm. but but I think it's uh, I think it's it is becoming egalitarian in many ways. Mm. It's interesting. It's yeah. it's far from over as well. Yeah, and that's not, a lot of that's happening in Beirut, and we really really feel it in a place where the media has been so dominated, so closed, um, and so infatuated with politicians and the story of their lives. And, and now we're talk, talking the about big, the story of our lives. The big posters on the building of the guy with the gun and. It's the, yeah. it's, it's the cult of personality. Yeah. It's that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. and you know that they they run the TV stations. Um, they you know that they're on twenty four hours a day almost talking. We we know their voices, um, but we don't know enough about these politicians. We need to ask the questions to kind of uh, you know what are their business interests, what do they own, that kind of thing, and, and kind of get away from these speeches and this rhetoric that the mainstream media has been pumping out. But all of that, I think. Is, is changing with these alternative, I guess, sources of information um, that are that are that are being put out there. Well, uh, I do appreciate your time, Habib, and uh, we we point to your work here on the show page at the Beirut Report dot uh, com. You can check out Habib's work. We've also got a link to your TED Talk, uh, which you did last year as well. That's really interesting, especially if you're interested in getting into journalism or citizen journalism. This is a great uh, starting point. Is a, a a really great example of uh, an independent journalist who's able to make an impact uh, with their work. And uh, I think it's, for, especially for the student, someone who wants to get into this field, it's very inspirational looking at your work and, and hearing your talk as well. So we encourage people to check that out. But uh, thanks, Habib. Uh, Habib Bata, he's, uh, he's with us and he's, he's going soon. But thank you very much for your time. And we really appreciate uh, your input and all these, this and many issues. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. We're going to be taking a short break and we're going to reconnect with our next guest from the main west side of the main island of Japan. James Corbett will be with us after the break. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. Better. Stronger. Faster. 